Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 30 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, August the 26th. And Liam, we're talking this week to James Deverell of the CSIRO. That's right. Uh, he... The C- CSIRO is a strategic advisory and foresight arm of Australia's National Science Agency, and he's going to be talking to us all about the advice his team gives to some of Australia's biggest companies in government on how to create sustainable growth and competitive advantage by harnessing science, technology and innovation. And it's really good to see the CSIRO doing something like that. And then uh, we're talking to Shane Oliver. That's right. Shane is going to give us his assessment of the profit season so far. And he actually doesn't think it's that bad. There are some really good ones. Yep, absolutely. So now let's listen to James Deverell. James Deverell, you've uh, the lead in a recent report by CSIRO Futures about his, how businesses can prepare for what looks like a pretty uncertain future by better understanding the importance of science and technology. James, tell us what the sort of basis of the report is. What are some of the conclusions? Sure, sure. Um, so the report really looks at some of the possible futures that we may face here in Australia. And it's based on work that we've done uh, inside of CSIRO and have been doing over the last six years uh, that looks at long-term what we call megatrends, uh, which are the big social, economic, and environmental patterns of change uh, that will really fundamentally change the way that we work and live. Um, and we've been, we've been talking about these trends for a while. Uh, and one of the big questions that we always get, uh, particularly when we're out talking to uh, talking to industry is, well, what, what is this really going to mean for our sector? What will this mean for my business? And so this report is really a, an effort uh, to look at what impact those trends could have across some of our biggest sectors, what impact could they have on, on some of our most established companies. And then it provides a, a framework uh, that's based in a, in a scenarios-based approach for individual companies or sectors uh, to do a more detailed analysis uh, on, on their own. You've formed, I think, four scenarios that to give examples of how things might go. That, that's right, yeah. So there's, there's four scenarios in the report, uh, and those scenarios are really uh, designed, I think, to expand our thinking and to get us out of the, the, the groupthink that we can sometimes fall into. Uh, and each of those scenarios is a, uh, it's a, it's a combination of the, the trends playing out in different ways. Uh, and some of those scenarios end up being quite favorable for Australia. Uh, we've also painted a, a picture of one scenario that's, that's less favorable. What are some of these uh, big megatrends? Sure. So in, in the report, uh, we've identified seven megatrends, uh, which again are these, these major patterns of change. Uh, and just to give an example of a couple of the kinds of things that we're looking at, uh, one of the trends that, that we, we look at, uh, we call planetary pushback. And that's really looking at how changes in Earth systems uh, are going to create challenges for humanity, both at the, the macro level, uh, looking at things like climate change, uh, but then also down to the microbial level, looking at things like antimicrobial resistance, uh, which is becoming an increasing increasing issue. So we, we look at things like that. Uh, we look at things like um, uh, digital immersion, which is the, the growth of computing power and data uh, and how that's enabling new business models and, and fundamentally transforming 
some of our most uh, uh, established industries. Uh, and we look at things like the Silk Highway, which is about how uh, as the world grows wealthier and, and we, we expect that global incomes are, are going to double uh, over the next 30 years. Uh, and as that happens, that's going to create enormous opportunities for Australian businesses. Uh, but it's also going to create new competition. And it means that, that we're going to have to boost our competitiveness uh, if we want to, to, to be a global player. So this means that you need imagination in the business community as well as understanding don't you to get and also talent i mean what's the outlook for the talent say yeah no that's that's right i think there's there's a couple probably a couple of messages here uh in my mind and and one of those is uh that we need to be uh i think we need to be more strategic about the way that we use science technology and innovation in the business community um and that we we really need to take a a top-down strategic view towards how we innovate um, and look at how do we use technology and how do we use innovation to stay ahead of the game. And, and sometimes I think we, we fall into the trap of, of looking at technology and, and innovation uh, as, as really a, a tactical solution to, to you know, short-term challenge. Uh, but if we use it more effectively, we can open up huge opportunities and, and make sure that we're staying ahead uh, globally. Um, and then you ask about uh, skills as well, and, and certainly one of the underpinnings behind that is has got to be uh, a strong basis in 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 science and technology in our our primary, secondary, and tertiary education system. The the other thing that we've looked at recently is the impact that the the digital economy will have on uh, on jobs um, and the how the changing job landscape. Uh, is going to change the requirements that we'll need for different skills. Well, what will be the impact on the job market? Uh, there's a, a separate report from this that uh, CSIRO has released recently that, again, looks at multiple scenarios in that area. And, and it you know, could play out in several different ways. But I think one of the things that we're very likely to see is that a number of jobs have the potential to be uh, replaced through digital technologies, through automation, but that there'll also be enormous job creation behind that as well in, in new areas. Um, and so we'll need to make sure that we're, we're, we're developing the right skills for the next wave of jobs uh, in order to be competitive. The Internet of Things is the growing trend, they all say, and that's going to really reshape business technology, the whole thing, isn't it? Where Where's Australia at in that and are there opportunities with it? Yeah, so it's it's certainly one of the areas that's being talked about a lot. Um, and I think if you look at the uh, the, the growth trends of the, the number of devices connected to the internet, uh, we're seeing exponential growth there. And of course, the amount of data that's being created by those devices growing exponentially as well. Uh, and that that's really an area that has the potential to to shift even the most established industries. If you think about how we can use data analytics uh, to start to solve problems that that we couldn't before. And and just to give an example there, one of the areas that that CSIRO has been doing some work in um, is predictive analytics. And so that's looking at if we get a big enough data set from, say, something like a water utility. So if we look at the the, the data that comes in on faults in that, that system, we can start to, to, to do analytics on that and predict where we think faults are going to be likely to happen in the near future. And as a result, we can dramatically reduce the costs associated with maintenance uh, in that system. 
So those are the kind of, I think, big opportunities, and that's that's just one of many examples uh, that uh, the data and data analytics, along with the Internet of Things, uh, will enable. Now, a lot of uh, companies aren't really across uh, data, and uh, a lot of companies can't afford to employ data scientists. So, what should they do? Well, uh, that's it's a it's a great question. Um, I think there's there's probably a couple of things that I would I would say. The first is again. Um, to take a top-down strategic approach to it. So rather than looking at, oh, we've got a, you know, we've got a problem over here. Can we can we throw some analytics at it? Would be to say, how can we, from the from the, you know, from our basic strategic planning, use data as as a core source of competitive advantage in our business? And you look at the the, the digital services uh, economy, and then you think about companies like Uber and Airbnb, and those, those are those are obviously well-used examples, uh, along with Google and Amazon, they, they use data at the core of their business. And uh, that's something that I think is also going to have the potential to transform industries like mining, like manufacturing, like oil and gas. And so, the first, again, the first would be to look at it uh, from a very strategic perspective. Um, the second is to find the right partners. So recognizing that, that not every company out there is is going to want to go out and hire a, a, a whole team of uh, data scientists. Look around and find the right partners who have the capabilities that you're looking for, whether that's uh, in the research space, whether that's in a commercial space. One of the things that, that I think is, is fundamentally changing about the way that we think about technology and innovation is that it's becoming increasingly collaborative. And because of the complexity of the kind of issues that we face uh, and the number of disciplines that are often involved in, in some of these complex challenges, really no one organization is going to be able to bring all of the skills necessary to, to, to solve the challenge. And so you look at, you know, large scale problems, you look at the, you know, the teams that, that solve them, it's almost always going to be multidisciplinary made up of, of a number of different partners who come together to, to find that solution. And it's also going to be a global uh, solution as well, isn't it? You look for partners almost anywhere in the world, not just locally. Is that a thought? That, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and in fact, that's one of the trends that we look at is how those boundaries are coming, coming down globally. We, we call the trend porous boundaries, but it looks at how the relationship between employee and employers is changing, how the relationship between companies is changing, and how the relationship between countries is changing as well. That we're seeing trade barriers come down, we're seeing global supply chains, and we're seeing global research partnerships and alliances. Um, and so that's that's absolutely uh, something that we need to be thinking about. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, in many ways, Australia is, uh, in terms of research, we're, we we punch above our weight. With I think about 0.3 percent of the world's population, we do about three percent of of the world's R and D, which which is fantastic. Uh, but we we always need to be looking at how we we uh, maintain our connections into the global research community. Well, going from what you're saying, the big discussions businesses should now be having are about one about technology, and secondly about the geopolitics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, you know the the. The politics side of it is is something that um, uh, I, I probably w won't touch on too much, but certainly on the, the technology side of it, uh, absolutely. James Deverell, thank you very much for your time. It's fascinating and looks as though we've got quite a challenge ahead of us. I, I think so, but um, but I think there's an enormous amount of opportunity as well. And, and I think uh, if we make the right choices today, it puts us on, on the right path to, to have a, uh, a bright future.
Indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, as we said, um, it's very nice to see the CSIRO getting into uh, this sort of area, and uh, I understand they're going to hire a whole lot of more, a whole lot more scientists as well, having chucked them all out six months ago. Well, that would be really good. That would be really good, and it would be interesting to see what companies do with that advice. You know, I mean, I think Australia's researchers are second to none in the developed world. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. When, when you look at what they've done, I mean, from the invention of Wi-Fi through to all sorts of stuff about uh, printable solar panels, uh, polymer science, this sort of thing, this, it, CSRO is a wonderful engine. That's right. That's right. And uh, I, the other week, I, I, or the other day, I got together with an old mate of mine who's a uh, an ex fighter pilot actually, and he runs a company, and he he collects aircraft and he does air shows and stuff like that. And he had an old boomerang aircraft. Now, for those who don't remember it, the boomerang uh, was designed during the Second World War. The Japanese had burned, burned bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941. So in January 1942, the Curtin government came to the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation and said we don't have anything can you do something the commonwealth aircraft corporation said yeah okay that was in january 1942 the boomerang had its first flight in may 1942 so five months from the discussion to the first flight now what other country could do that and it shows what australia is capable of what australia is capable of when it's desperate absolutely mark you the boomerang wasn't the greatest ever airplane but at least it got off the ground no well i think it was the equivalent of creating a space shuttle yeah and in engineering terms you're absolutely right um okay now shane on uh, the economy shane oliver we're into uh, the last week of the reporting season what's your assessment of it so far it's been okay. I wouldn't say it's fantastic, um, but I think the key thing is that it's been slightly better than expected um, because don't forget this was always going to be a tough reporting season because resource sector profits are down something like 50% on where they were in the previous financial year, which was 2014-15, and that seems to be pretty much panning out to be the case. And, of course, though a 50% fall in resource profits um, drags the whole market down. So aggregate profits are going to be down something like 8 or 9% um, for the last financial year. The good, the good news, though, is that resources companies have been no worse than expected. If anything, they're seeing upgrades because of the renewed strength in commodity prices and profit growth for the rest of the market has also turned out to be okay. In fact, when I look at um, companies relative to expectations, we're seeing about 45 46% exceed expectation, which is roughly in line with the long-term norm. And we're also seeing about 68 or so of companies grow their profits from where they were a year ago. In fact, the median company, which obviously abstracts from the uh, the bleak resources story, the median company has seen profits up 5%. So if you sort of abstract from the extremes, overall corporate Australia is doing okay, not fantastically, but doing okay. That, I think, most importantly, is the springboard for strength going into next year, um, or in fact, the current financial year. So we've now seen the worst in terms of the resources sector. Uh, commodity prices are higher. Um, they're starting to export volumes out of the new mines. And all of that, I think, will see a return to profit, profitable growth for the resources sector at a time when the rest of the market is benefiting from modest, reasonable growth out of the, out of the whole economy. So I think it should be seen as a transitionary reporting season from the weakness that we've seen over the last few years, setting the scene up for stronger profit growth in the, the current financial year and the year after. 
One of the things that struck me about this reporting season is was the performance of the banks. I mean, they've all reported bad debts. And profits have been not that good. I mean, well, profit growth has been very, very modest. I mean, what's your assessment of that? That's right. The uh, the best is over for the banks. Um, for a while there, you, you could hide in the banks um, if you're worried about resources sector, about resources stocks. Um, that's no longer the case. The resources uh, stocks are actually performing better and the banks are struggling a little bit. So a whole bunch of factors are dragging the banks down. One is they're, they're under pressure to put more capital aside. Secondly, um, they uh, and of course, when you have more capital, i.e. more shareholder capital, that costs you money and it's into your profit margin. On top of that, we're seeing uh, more difficult conditions in terms of lending growth. So the lending growth they've been used to won't continue going forward as the housing market slows down, albeit in fits and starts. And uh, all of these things, I think, are combining for a more more difficult environment for the banks. Um, So I think that sort of purple patch they had is well and truly behind us. Um, I don't see it as a disaster. Um, I should also mention there the rise of non-performing loans. Bear in mind that most of that is resource-related. So a lot of those loans which have gone pear-shaped are loans to companies or individuals associated with the resources boom. That's now over. And uh, those companies, individuals, are now seeing a much tougher time. Um, but if you sort of abstract from all of that, you know, you, I, I guess the bottom line is that uh, bank dividends are probably secure. So if you want the income from the banks, you're still going to get that. Um, they're not going to slash their dividends, um, but you should just allow that the, the growth um, we've become used to just won't be there. It's going to be uh, probably low single digit sort of growth out of earnings and therefore low single digit capital growth is the best you can expect coming from the banks. I mean, one of the uh, really interesting aspects of this year's profit season uh, is you've had a select group of high-growth companies uh, maintaining their um, heady price earnings multiples. You know, companies like, say, Domino's Pizza, Treasury Wine Estates that everyone seems to love, Bellamy's Australia, Seek, Cochlear, they're all doing really well. They are, and there's uh, lots of factors going on there. Obviously, Treasury Wine Estates has benefited from the, the decline in the Aussie dollar over the last five years. Now, but it's gone up a bit lately, but uh, it's still well down on where it was several years back. Um, so anyone with overseas earnings should be doing reasonably well. Um, some of them have very good uh, franchises. Obviously, Domino's Pizza is an example of that. Um, so what all of that tells me is that uh, you know, there's, there's parts of the market out there that can do spectacularly well and have surprise quite nicely through this earnings reporting season. Ansel, Ansel was another one that uh, did pretty well through the reporting season. So yeah, there's some companies which have struggled um, but overall if you've got uh, overseas earnings if you've got um, exposure to the housing market in Australia if you've got exposure to the jobs market which SEEK does where jobs growth has been reasonably solid um, you're doing okay and particularly if you've got uh, a decent sort of consumer discretionary franchise like uh, like uh, Domino's do then you also do pretty well. Well I also I mean in the case of JB Hi-Fi they were helped along by the demise of Dick Smith. There's certainly another one to, to fit into that equation there. And it all tells you that if you get your model right, um, you can do reasonably well in this environment. Because it's not as if the Australian economy has been in recession or anything. It's actually been recording reasonably good growth. I mean, the, the main problem, I guess, has been um, obviously the, the huge detraction from growth due to the mining investment downturn. That's almost run its course. I think next year it will have come to an end. And then uh, the other factor is the lack of pricing power in the economy. But if you've got a decent franchise and get your model right, like JB Hi-Fi has, for example, you can still do reasonably well despite uh, despite falling prices for many of your product lines. Tell me, I mean, what, what would be your assessment of the outlook for 2017 then? Well, just as 2015-16 uh, has seen profits down 8 9% or so, 
mainly driven by the resources stocks, 2016-17, i.e. the current financial year, we'll see a reversal of that. And uh, there's good chance we'll actually see profits up 8 or 9%. Now, a big chunk of that will come from a turnaround in the resources side um, as commodity prices have seemed to have stabilised and volumes have picked up and they've got their costs under control. Um, but part of it will also come from... I think a pickup in the uh, the non-resource, non-bank part of the of the market, we'll probably see a return to growth of say yeah, five five six percent or something of that order. So, and I think this is all very important. This is why the share market has surprised everyone since Brexit. Um, at the times of Bre- time of Brexit, everyone was very nervous, very negative, um, thought the sky was falling, and of course, along comes this rally from the other direction, which of course initially no one believed, and of course, um, it's it's tended to go on um, from there. But I think what's happening is that the Australian share market is anticipating this transition from very weak earnings in the last financial year to stronger earnings growth in the current financial year. And, of course, this, all, this is all occurring against a backdrop of very low interest rates. Um, we've seen another Reserve Bank rate cuts in the last, uh, the last few weeks. And, of course, uh, when you've got very low interest rates, shares can typically trade on relatively high PEs. Um, in fact, there's a sort of a, a classic curved relationship there that as interest rates go lower and lower, the P goes higher and higher, um, simply because uh, lower interest rates mean search for yield activity, which pushes down the yield on shares and pushes up their PE. Um, so as long as we don't sort of fall over into deflation or outright deflation, that is, or a recession, then I think the market should continue to do well. Now, in the very short term, I, I should point out the share market has... Um, run very hard, very fast, could go through a bit of a, a pause consolidation. Maybe we've been doing that for the last little while, last few weeks, but um, uh, I, I don't see a major fall there. I don't think we're going to see the sort of falls we saw in the second half of last year occurring this year, simply because um, that pr- profit transition is becoming a more positive one. Now, there's every prospect of the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates further. Uh, I mean, there's talk of it being certainly uh, after October and probably by May next year. Uh, what will that do for the share market? Well, if the Reserve Bank is cutting because inflation is low or lower than they would want it to be, and they're also cutting to keep the Australian dollar down, as opposed to the Reserve Bank cutting to, um, to, to strengthen economic growth in the economy, then I think that would be a good thing. You know, this combination of lower interest rates but still reasonable growth in the economy would be a good thing for the share market and would probably push shares higher. And I think that's what you've seen a little bit lately since May, that the May rate cuts wasn't so much because the economy had fallen over, it was because inflation had fallen over. And that, that I think, has generally been taken positively by the share market. So any further cut by the Reserve Bank, I think, would be taken positively. Now, there are some there who I think are getting a bit too negative on the economy, on uh, how far the Reserve Bank will go. Um, you know, talk of several rate cuts, talk of a shift towards, possible shift towards unconventional monetary policy or quantitative easing or money printing, whatever you want to call it. Um, my, my take is that those things probably won't happen. I, I think the Reserve Bank is getting close to the bottom here. Some chance it might have already seen it. Because when I look at the Australian economy, sure, inflation is below target, but the Reserve Bank would probably say, well, we've cut a few times already. We could handle core inflation, underlying inflation, sort of staying around 1.5% for a while and eventually going back up to the target. Um, and at the same time, when you look at the growth outlook for Australia, you could argue, well, the housing recovery has gone on for longer than expected. I'm talking here about the housing construction uh, recovery. That's gone on for longer than expected. That might uh, continue for another year yet before housing starts detracting from economic growth. Um, by that 
the time that happens, though, the mining investment boom um, will have virtually fully unwound, which has already been unwinding for the last three or four years. Um, so by the time we get to middle of next year, that will probably that unwind will probably come to an end. Um, and so we won't need the same degree of strength from the housing sector because we won't have the big detraction from growth occurring from uh, the mining investment slump. And on top of all of this, you've got... Um, You've got obviously the the ongoing pickup in resources exports uh, flowing from the completed mines and resources projects. Gas is the next one. This is the big one this year. Um, and we've got signs that uh, the terms of trade or national income might be starting to bottom out and maybe drift up a little bit. Um, and then finally, you've got this uh, thing called the asset recycling program. I guess a lot of people forgot that one. That was uh, one of the good things Joe Hockey did in his term, come up with this idea that if uh, state governments sell off uh, public assets and recycle those assets into new investment and infrastructure, then they will tip in a little bit to the states. And of course, uh, New South Wales seems to have taken that idea with gusto, and that's leading to a pickup in in public uh, investment spending, which I think is very good for the economy. So you put all those things together, Australian economy story, I think, looks reasonably healthy. Shane Ola, thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think the profit season has been patchy, but I was really heartened by what Shane said, that the resources sector has bottomed out and it looks like it will be coming good again next year. Well, Fortescue's paid a pretty whacking big dividend this year. That's right. And they've, they've got their costs down. I think the last we heard was something about uh, they dropped their cost of processing iron ore from about $40 a tonne to something around 20, 15 to 20 Yeah, and, and look, I, and BHP Bulletin's had a horror result, but... That is the end of it. Well, a lot of that was the Brazilian Dambos. A lot of it was that too. Yeah. So now, the news, Leon. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, Islamist attacks have scared off thousands of tourists from Paris and its top attractions and it's helped rob the French capital of 750 million euro. That's about 1.1 billion Aussie in revenue, according to French officials. Strikes and floods have also taken their toll, overshadowing a boost from the Euro 2016 soccer championships, leaving the France's tourism industry in need of a massive new investment and a rescue package. And uh, France's uh, tourism sector has said it's time to realise realize the tourism sector is going through an industrial disaster and visitors to the Arc Triomphe fell more than a third in the first half of 2016, according to the Tourist Board. The Grand Palais Museum reported a 43.9% slump. Hotel revenue has fallen 15% this summer in the Paris region. Wealthier tourists in particular are staying away, with high-end hotels reporting declines of between 30 and 40%. And like tourism typically provides more than 7% of France's gross domestic product, weak activity in France contributed to a fall in first half operating profit for French group Accor Hotels. Air France KLM expects its unit revenue to decline in July and August, partly due to the situation at home. So this will affect the French economy. It will. On the other hand, so long as the rain holds off, it could be a good time to visit Paris if the crowds have thinned That's out. right. That's right. But I mean, you wonder stuff like that. And of course, that earthquake in Italy and how that's going to affect the Italian economy. And all of that's going to flow through to the European economy. Oh, yeah. I, the, certainly the earthquake is a real worry. Now, to Australia and in the lead up to the start of Parliament next week, the Treasurer Scott Morrison has folded to demands by coalition MPs and watered down proposed superannuation concession crackdown in the budget. Mr Morrison agreed to extend from 500000 to 750000 the proposed lifetime cap on non-concessional contributions, but keep it backdated to 2007. But he has ruled out placating a restive backbench with further big concessions on superannuation. Backbenchers such as George Christensen and Jason Wood want to increase the divisive 500000 lifetime cap on 
after-tax super contributions to $1 million. But Mr Morrison said he can't face his own children if he took a softer line on wealthy superannuants. I might add, though, Gary, that analysis by the Parliamentary Budgetary Office, commissioned by the Greens, suggests any increase on that $500,000 limit could see budget savings evaporate. Yeah, that's right. And meanwhile, opposition leader Bill Shorten's announced that Labor will support the government making the 500,000 lifetime capital non-concessional contributions prospective, but he won't agree to backdate it by 10 years. And to make up for lost revenue, Labor's going to support lowering from 250,000 to 200,000 the income threshold at which a person's contributions are taxed at 30% rather than 15%. So Morrison has rejected that. And so that means the whole superannuation overhaul now is potentially in disarray because now he's going to have to go to the crossbench to get support. He possibly will, but I mean, Shorten, having said that he'll go along with the government, is now not going along with the government. Well, I, I somehow my my gut feeling is I can't see Labor opposing the superannuation reforms. No. I can't see them doing it. Yeah, we haven't me- they haven't mentioned um, the negative gearing yet, though, have they? No. Well, they, they've mentioned that in something else um, because the two sides are butting heads over the budget. Uh, when Parliament begins on Tuesday, the government will demand the swift passage of a bill containing twenty one spending cuts worth a combined $6.5 billion, which the opposition pledged to support directly or in kind during the election campaign. Now, the ALP says it will make a final decision when it sees the actual legislation, but it says budget repair should cut both ways. If the government's serious, it would adopt Labor's $8 billion in proposals as well. It is insisting adopt more than $8 billion, and that includes curbs on negative gearing and scrapping plans to introduce a baby bonus. And it's questioning the legitimacy the coalition's came to have a mandate. It argues the budget and the economy need a lot more than just $6.5 billion in cuts in the government's omnibus bill. And it's demanding Turnbull put the economy before politics. So, as I said, they're butting heads over it and there's a lot to see when Parliament resumes next Tuesday. Um, but, I mean, the truth is both sides are playing politics and that's part of the problem. Now, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has agreed to look at creating a special court to help victims of credit distress take legal action against banks. Now, coalition backbenchers told Prime Minister there's a need to establish a tribunal to arbitrate disputes between the financial sector and agreed customers. And the tribunal would have powers to make rulings and impose penalties on banks. And the move by the Prime Minister looks like it's going to take the heat out of the opposition's push to establish a royal commission in the banking sector. A Turnbull confirmed is considering the proposal put forward by backbenchers, including Liberal MP Warren Inch and National Senators John Wacker Williams. And that's despite the existence of banking ombudsman and financial ombudsman service. But... Labor says it's not backing down on its call for Royal Commission and points out the tribunal will be dealing with bad behaviour of banks without actually heading it off. And Labor claims complaints of the Ombudsman have soared more than 60% from 19,000 to 32,000. Yeah, uh, well, I, I still think that a Royal Commission is a very lugubrious way to go about talking about banks. Well, yes. Uh, well, we'll see whether what effect the tribunal has. Now, to the economy and solid labour force figures and a good real estate market and a buoyant stock market have seen consumer confidence soaring 3.6% to its highest level in three years, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. And the rise was broadly based. Households' views of the 12-month economic outlook rose by 12.5.4%. Households' views of the five-year economic outlook was up by 4.8%. Both indices are now tracking above their long-run averages for the first time since early 2013. So it's the highest level in three years. And at the same time, people's views about their own finances have ticked up 1.3%. But the interesting thing 
interesting, Gary, will be to see whether that actually translates into spending. Yeah, possibly won't, although I do think that given super the superannuitants, a large number of superannuitants in Australia, and the attention they now pay to share yield and this sort of stuff, even ordinary people, you know, I think that's got a lot, the, the latest results have got a lot to do with this uptick in uh, confidence. That's right. Yeah, well, I, I think so. You know, if, if the question is whether it translates into spending. And if it does translate into spending, that will affect GDP. But what will definitely affect GDP is the construction work done has crashed in the second quarter, led by a steep fall in mining-related engineering construction. Non-residential work slipped 1.3% from a year earlier to $35.4 billion. Engineering construction shed 14.7% to $95.2 billion. That's the lowest yearly total since June 2011 and total construction work done for the year was down 5% to 196.8 billion. It's the lowest rolling 12 monthly total since December the December 2011 when the figure was 193.1 billion. But on the other hand, residential construction increased to 63.63.3 billion from 60 billion a year ago as the country's biggest ever housing construction boom drove back activity in the sector. But it would that those sorts of figures will actually shed certain percentage points off our GDP, I think. Yeah, and I think the, the housing construction boom is probably about to plateau. I think I think so. I think it is. And so let's just watch that space because when residential construction does fall down, it's the construction sector will be in a lot of trouble. Now, Woolworths has sold its home timber and hardware group to the smaller retail group Metcash for $165 million. And meanwhile, a newly formed home consortium made up of an aged care provider, Aurum, the Spotlight Group, and Chemist Warehouse have agreed to buy the 82 master site sitting on a 700,000 square metre property portfolio. And the master's inventory will go to the local subsidiary of American auction house Great American Group for about five. Hundred million bucks. That's well short of the billions Woolworths spent creating masters. Yeah, but that's about twenty-five percent of their <laughs> outlay. I think. That's right. That's right. Now the masters chain will shut down on December the eleventh with jobs to go. Now Chemist Warehouse, of course, is owned by Mario Verrocci and Jack Gantz, with Zach Freed and Maury Freed owning Spotlight. All are members of the BRW Rich List, and the consortium plans to turn the master sites into retail centres with tenants that would include Spotlight, Chemist Warehouse, Anaconda, JB Hi. Fire, the good guys, Dan Murphy's, and ironically, Woolworths. And I might add that some of the sites have also been sold to Bunnings. Yeah, that, 15 of them are very that's good a, ones. That's too. right. So, anyway, these uh, tenants have all entered into agreements to move into the retail sectors which will begin operating from the second quarter of calendar 2017. And I I think that's really good news for Bunnings because what that means is you're going to get these centres in sites that were competing with Bunnings and they're going to attract more customers and that's good news for Bunnings. Oh, absolutely. The whole retail complex around. And there's one other point in this uh, mess and that is Caltex is interested in buying the Woolies petrol station. Well, let's just watch that space. But in all up, you'd say what's happened with Mark have been a humiliating retreat from Woolworths trying to crack the $45 million home improvement market. It was a disaster right from the start. Never ever got off the ground. And I think it will go down in history as one of the great Australian retail disasters. Yeah, and it, I think it'll continue to affect Woolies because Metcash, uh, you know, IGA and all the rest of it, um, are showing a good deal of strength. Now, in what is basically the final week of the profit reporting season, the company reports have been pouring in this week, and this was the biggest week, and by Friday, 90 
90% of the ASX would have reported. And we're not going to go over all of them, we just don't have time. But here are some of the highlights. Qantas posted a record $1.5 billion full-year profit, allowing the airline to pay dividends for the first time. Blackmores posted a net annual profit of $100 million, up a whopping 115%. Westfield Corporation lifted its profit 5.4% to US $491 million, or Aussie $645 million. Wally Parsons has swum back into the black, announcing a net profit after tax of $23.5 million, compared to a loss of $54.9 million a year ago. Australia's biggest plastic packaging manufacturer, Pack Group, posted a record net profit of 85.1 million that's up 25.8 percent from 2015 discount retailer the reject shop lifted its net profit by 20.1 percent to 117.1 million the a2 milk company posted a full year net profit after tax of 30.4 million compared to 2.1 million dollar loss last financial year bigger cheese reported normalized profit of 29.2 million up 33 percent blue scope steel posted a net profit after tax of 353.8 million that's up 160 60% on the previous year. That's a hell of a turnaround. Given that its competitor, Arium, is now in administration, the workers there have just rejected a 10% pay cut and it's going to be harder to sell. It says a lot, doesn't it? Fortescue posted a net profit of $984 million for the year through to June. That's up 210%. Online jobs operator Seek reported a record profit of $357.1 million, up 27% on the previous year. Healthscope's net profit surged 28.6% to $181.1 million. Virtus Health net profit for the year ended 11.8% higher to $32.918 million. Vocus Communications net profit more than tripled to $64.99 million. And that came on the back of the M2 merger and the acquisition of the Amcom Telecommunications in July 2015. But West Farmers profit plunged 83.3% to $407 million. And competition in the cutthroat food and liquor business has cut into West Farmers' bottom line. Coles reported comparable food source sales for fiscal 2016 of 4.3%, but in the final quarter, comparable food source sales slumped 3.2%. That's the lowest growth rate since the first half of 2009. Coles and Woolworths are both facing increasing competitive pressures from German-owned discount retailer Aldi, which has aggressive expansion plans. And of course, Woolworths will be reporting a big loss this week on the back of $1 billion worth of restructuring and its exit from the master's business. Yeah, that area of uh, retail is uh, fraught with danger. So anyway, those are the profit figures. And as I said, Gary, that's the bulk of it. And 90% of the uh, figures, that's 90% of the ASX reported by the end of Friday. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're going to have a fantastic interview with Alistair Wardlaw and Alan Stockdale from the e-commerce firm Gnosis. Of course, Alan Stockdale was a former Victorian treasurer. So it's going to be a terrific interview. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.